Welcome to the Sword and the Trowel podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Welcome to the Sword and the Trowel today. You are tuning into a very special edition of the Sword and the Trowel because we have a very special guest. And when I use special guest, I really mean it. You mean special. I mean guest. special. We have Sam Renahan on the phone. Uh, Sam is married to Kimberly Renahan. They have a son, Owen. He serves as pastor of Trinity Reformed <coughs> Baptist Church in La Mirada, California. Did I get it right, Sam? Yes. Oh, good, good. He's authored several articles and books in English and Spanish. Uh, one of those books is From Shadow to Substance, The Federal Theology of the English Particular Baptists. Yeah, Sam, welcome to the show. We're delighted that you're willing to spend a few minutes with us to talk about your newest book. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Jared, for, for having me on this show. I'm really excited to join you. Yeah, you know, I was trying to remember as we were preparing for this show how long I've known your dad, and I can't recall. I, I knew your uncle before I knew your dad, Mike. Uh, yeah. Mike worked for Ligonier, oh, man, 30 years ago probably or maybe more. Uh, when they first moved to Orlando, uh, he was he mm -hmm. came down here with them, and it, it was just funny listening to him tell – about some of the practical jokes that went on in the office there. Uh, most of them he was responsible for. But it was through Mike that I got to meet your dad and have appreciated his ministry. He is the, is it the dean or the president of the uh, RBS? President. He's the president of the uh, Reform uh, Institute, Institute of Reform. Reform Baptist Studies, right, which is now located just outside of Fort Worth, Texas. And you teach there, right, Sam? Yes, I'm an adjunct, an adjunct professor, so I'll be teaching a class actually starting tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> or, no, starting Wednesday, but I leave tomorrow. Starting Wednesday, which for those of you listening means like a week or two ago. Yeah, and we've got a, <laughs> yeah, I think you're teaching a course on covenant theology, and we're sending a book freshly off the Founders Press written by you called The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom. And... Uh, Man, I don't over-exaggerate when I say I have really, really, really been looking forward to this book. Yeah. I think I've, we've already talked about it, I think, months ago. Yeah, several times. On The Sword and the Trowel. Um, I, was, I was standing at the G3 conference in Atlanta, Georgia. I was talking to a guy. I can't remember his name at the time. But I kept saying, somebody's got to write a straight-up-the-middle 1689 Baptist covenant theology, this thing everybody's talking about. Um, Somebody's got to just spell out the system. We have a lot of guys that have been doing good work on this. And then somebody said, Sam's writing that book, or he's maybe he's written that book. And I said, are you serious? And I like that moment, I emailed Sam, said, Sam, we would love to publish this book. I heard you might be working on this book. Sam said, yep, just finish it. And you sent it over to us. And I read it and was just so excited to, uh, to have it come and see the light of day. Yeah, so Sam, tell us uh, about the genesis of this book. Why did you write this book? I have a lot of reasons for wanting to write this book, and it's been a long time, a long time coming. Uh, as, a, as a seminary student at Westminster Seminary in California, I really enjoyed the opportunity to take classes from our Reformed brethren as well as from my dad when IRBS was there, and thinking through issues of covenant theology and its practical implications for the church and for the and sacraments and such things. And so I was thinking about these things during school and continuing to think about them every year and almost every day mm. since. And then I, I began to read more and more 
the literature of the 17th century and the arguments for covenant theology from a variety of different perspectives and those arguments in dialogue with each other becoming debates about covenant theology. And obviously I did my PhD work on that. And I've also, growing up in this age of social media, I've seen almost every day (laughs) debates and debates and debates about covenant theology and articles and books in our own time. And there's so much being said about it, so many people thinking about it, that one of the reasons that I wanted to try to offer something in the way of covenant theology was that so much of the literature, whether it's in the 17th century or today, was so much of it was just stuck, at least from my perspective, stuck in polemics, Mm. stuck with trying to prove the other side wrong. And that, that just became really frustrating and it became tiring. And so I wanted to try to write something that was positive and non-polemical, a, a work on covenant theology that would lead you to worship and not to war. Mm. Because in, in my experience, it seemed like almost every book or article I read about it was leading you towards war. Okay, this is how we fight as opposed to this is how we, uh, we adore uh, our God. Mm. And I wanted to therefore cut a, as straight a path as possible in the book. And, and one, one way in which I've tried to do that is as I have read the literature of the past and present is in my opinion, I, I see these feedback loops, these impasses of terminology where people are talking past each other because the, the words they're using or the terminology that they're employing just is not sufficiently communicating the two sides to be able to speak to each other. And so you end up with just assertions as opposed to arguments. And I wanted to to argue a positive case in a non-polemical way, cutting a straight path. And so that's really where my heart has come from is let's, let's know what we believe. Let's know it well. Let's be able to advocate it. Let's enjoy it. Let's have it lead us to worship. And to, to do that without even thinking about or, or without focusing on uh, proving pedo-baptism wrong or proving credo-baptism right, you know, let's, let's separate those things. Yes, they're connected, but let's, let's focus on covenant theology itself. And that's really where this book is coming from and what it's trying to do. So, Sam, if you were to summarize your book in, uh, say, a, a few sentences, a paragraph or so, um, what would you say the mystery of Christ is all about? It's about the unity of God's plan in redemptive history and how all of the covenants um, feed into that and support God's purpose. And the, the title of the book comes from Paul's various assertions in the New Testament that there was a, a mystery, the mystery of Christ, that was revealed. It was made known. Christ was made known in the Old Testament, but he was made known in a, in a partial way. And, and so mystery is the term that Paul uses. And so I really wanted to think through, okay, if we develop a covenant theology that, that looks at God's dealings with man throughout history, are we sensitive to the fact that Christ and his work and the, and the end, the plan for the end times, the plan for, for all ages, are we sensitive to the fact that that is a mystery in the Old Testament? Mm-hmm. And it needs to be 
understood as a mystery in the Old Testament that is revealed in the New Testament. And so this book is, is looking at each covenant throughout the scriptures. How does it contribute to making that mystery known? And how does it all coalesce and terminate in Christ and his covenant and his kingdom, which is for all peoples in all places who have faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I, I know that in a sense you'd say, well, but, but what does the book say? <laughs> and really it's, it's so compre- it's trying to be so com- comprehensive that you can't just sum it up in, in one simple way. It's really trying to give the forest and the trees and argue that, you know, Adam's covenant and the kingdom given to him you know, burns in the curse and then God stabilizes it through Noah's covenant. And then God uh, preserves a family in particular, Abraham's family to be a nation from which will be born uh, the Christ who will keep the law and who will be that perfect King and who will usher in uh, an everlasting heavenly kingdom through a, a new and better covenant. And so all of these things work together. They're not um, disassociated paths. They're not, uh, well, let's start over. It's all one perfect plan that began before time, to use that language. And now we live in the in a day of fullness and revelation, like Hebrews 1 says. You know, in, in ages past, there was various forms of, of revelation and, and things being made known. But in these latter days, these end days, this, this final time, we've seen the unveiling of the master plan in Christ's work and his words. Yeah, so Sam, that's what the book is about. So I think you've done a good job of that, especially the, the point of worshiping. Uh, it's throughout the book, and there's not, I mean, you're kind whenever you take on your positions and argue for them. But the, the call to just step back and acknowledge this is what our God has done. This is what we've been caught up in by grace. It's, it's a wonderful book uh, for that purpose. I wouldn't call it a devotional book. It's a rigorously theological book, but it has the right purpose of theology always in mind, which is doxology. And I was particularly helped with your, um, I think it was on the kingdom, you're talking about the protology and then the typology and then eschatology and how this has been the way God has seen fit to manifest his kingdom in the progression of uh, the uh, revelation of the covenants. Can you speak on that a bit? Yeah. Uh, I, I really thought that that, and that progression is not unique to me. I've heard it from others, but I thought that that progression was a good way to, to sum up the, the progress for protology, the, the first things and with Adam and Noah. Okay. Uh, we are we are shown that there is uh, a perfect eternal life available, uh, and then we're shown that um, one person stands in the place of others. So you get this this foundational level of revelation in the garden, which of course Rich Barcello's book Getting the Garden Right is all about understanding protology, understanding those things or another good book on that would be uh dr fesco's last things first uh and so protology you get this initial level of revelation with adam and then typology it's it's developed and it's carried forward in israel where israel is a, a new son of god in a new garden in a new paradise called to keep god's law and worship him in purity and that begins to develop a, a picture, not just of who they are, but of something other and greater that is to come in the future. And so that, of course, is, is preparing, that typology is preparing Israel and the world for Jesus Christ, the 
the last Adam, as the scriptures say, who is the son of God uh, in by deity and, and humanity, so to speak. And he perfectly keeps the law and he brings us into the glory of God, which he failed to enter in Adam. He brings all his sons to glory. He brings a new mankind into a new creation. And so that becomes eschatology. That's where the protology you first saw in Adam reaches its zenith, its fulfillment. That's where all the typology of Israel comes to fruition and sees its fulfillment is in Christ and his eschatology, the last things, the consummation. This is where it all comes together and it all ends in Christ. And I think that that, that little trio of typology, typology, eschatology really helps us to sort of grasp in, in one simple way the development and the progress of redemptive history and its unity mm-hmm. uh, and, and, as I just said, development. Sam, if the, uh, if the Presbyterian system is uh, essentially one covenant of grace, two administrations, uh, what is the covenantal structure that you have advanced in this particular book? One of the things that I try to lay out in the first part of the book is that we have to be sensitive to the relationship between our system and our exegesis or the the progress, the progressive narrative of scripture and what it reveals to us. And so if, if I look at a model such as one covenant under two administrations, I, I would personally think that the system is overriding the exegesis at that point. And, and here's, let me be specific and not just assert, but argue. Hebrews says that the book of Hebrews says that the new covenant forgives sins that the old covenant could not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the blood of Christ removes sins that animal sacrifices could not. And so Hebrews argues that the new covenant is therefore a better covenant established on better promises. And so when I look at that and other passages of scripture, I would say, okay, my system, if I drew from that a system that says, well, those two covenants are simply two administrations, two outward forms of the same covenant, I would say that's, I don't think that that's accurate. I don't think that that properly reflects the teaching of the scriptures on this point. And so what I'm advocating in this book, really to put it, try to put it simply is that each covenant is just its own covenant. (laughs) Each covenant is itself. And we don't, we can stop asking the question, okay, but is this covenant also the covenant of works or is this covenant Mm -hmm. also the covenant of grace? You're I believe that we can be unchained from that type of thinking where your system starts to override your exegesis and you can say, no, the covenant of works is the covenant of works and the Noahic covenant is the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic is the Abrahamic and the Mosaic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, the Davidic and the new, the new. And we don't have to try to, to systematize. Well, we do systematize, but we, we are sensitive to how those things relate to each other. And well, let me just, make one thing clear that as I say, these covenants are their own covenants. I want to, to reinforce and repeat that they are all connected in bringing to completion the singular united master plan of God, which is the mystery of Christ and his covenant and kingdom. And so I don't want to be seen as separating those covenants, but rather as distinguishing those covenants in a way in which I think other covenant theologies have not properly done. So what am I advocating? Well, that, that each covenant is its own covenant and they all work together in God's plan to bring about his purposes. And you know, what encourages me is that 
when we talk to our Pado baptist brethren or other Baptist brethren who perhaps have different models than we do, the we agree on many, many, many of the, the particulars and the pieces. And it's really the way they get put together in the system where we disagree. And so I'm, I'm hoping that as others read it who may disagree with some things, I, I hope that we can find a good amount of agreement on the particulars and the pieces, which would help us to be a bit less um, combative with each other when we get to how they all get fitted together. You say, okay, well, we agree on, on these pieces. Let's, let's think about maybe our systems aren't as far away from each other as we thought Mm -hmm. and such things. So again, just trying to be peaceful, but also engaging with with other traditions you know and I, I think you've accomplished that really well sam one of the things that went through in my mind is when i first read it is that i bet there are new covenant theology guys who are going to appreciate this have you had any interaction with uh folks from that side about this manuscript I can't think of anyone who would identify themselves by that label that has seen this work. Okay. I've taught, I've taught it in three different classes prior to this. And I'm, I'm sure there were new covenant leanings for some of the students and they asked questions, but I, I haven't had serious engagement from, from new covenant theologians with the material. And so I don't, I don't know how they'll respond to it. We'll see. One of the things that I've appreciated uh, from uh, some of the folks on, on that, that hold that view is that they really do want to emphasize the newness of the new. And, and I think, yeah, amen, that we need to do that. And quite honestly, I think sometimes the way covenant theology has been articulated, as you demonstrate, uh, doesn't take that seriously enough. And yet, I don't think anyone would be able to say that about the way you've articulated the, um, the revelation of the fullness of Christ in the new covenant as the covenant of grace. I mean, I think you've, you've done that really well. Sam, well, thank if I can, you. Um, follow up on what you've laid out. Uh, I'd like to see if we can uh, press in a little deeper here and see, see if people that have not uh, engaged this work or even really heard about what, you know, the covenant theology conversations, especially that Baptists have been having recently. So those people can get a, at least a taste of what's in this book. When you mention that each covenant is kind of its own, um, maybe coming from the Presbyterian side of things, w- this might strike them when we start talking about the Abrahamic covenant. Um, and and say, make, tell me if I've got this right. I, I've read your other work, uh, From Shadow to Substance, which is a great work. It's, it's kind of hard to get a hold of, but if you're listening to here, you should get From Shadow to Substance. Um, that's going to help you in understanding the mystery of Christ. But your case there was identifying in the Reformed movement that there were those who understood the Mosaic Covenant kind of as a third thing, not just a republication of the Covenant of Works and not just the Covenant of Grace. And then you say Baptists laid hold of that and then walked that back into the Abrahamic mm-hmm. Covenant. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's correct. That's a historical description of what many of the particular Baptists did. And my, my work is very much in line with that kind of thinking, though uh, it's not not on every point exactly what you would read necessarily in a 17th century particular Baptist, but they weren't all the same themselves. So, so, so when it comes to the Abrahamic covenant, would you say um, that eternal life is not being promised in the covenant, in the Abrahamic covenant, but what is being promised in the Abrahamic covenant is uh, the physical land in Canaan, life in Canaan, uh, while certainly making the, point that typologically you would say 
that eternal life is being offered. Is that an accurate assessment of how you're understanding it? And won't you speak to that a little bit? Yes. The, one of the arguments that I try to advance in the book is that we can make a distinction between saying <clears throat> the Abrahamic covenant promises Jesus Christ. He will be born from this people who will inherit this land and will become numerous and all these things. So the Abrahamic covenant promises Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, the Abrahamic covenant promises the new covenant, which is in Jesus Christ. It's why he is going to be born. But you can distinguish and say, but therefore the Abrahamic covenant itself, in itself, does not itself promise that eternal life. It promises the one who will provide eternal life through the new covenant. And and I think that that's a very important distinction uh, to, to make so that we do not flatten out and reduce, uh, or, or in my opinion, transform the, the Abrahamic covenant into the covenant of grace, which is where we really part ways with our paedo-baptist brethren. And, and so if someone, if someone described my view as the Abrahamic covenant does not promise eternal life, I would say, well, let's just, let's just make a distinction here. The Abrahamic covenant in itself does not save your sins, but the Abrahamic covenant promises that, that the one who saves sins will be born. And so therefore it does point you to Christ. It points you to that blessing for the nations, which is Christ and his covenant. And so you cannot divorce salvation in Christ from the Abrahamic covenant, but you can distinguish it from the Abrahamic covenant. And I try to use all sorts of scriptures that consistently identify the Abrahamic covenant as the covenant for Abraham and his natural offspring to inherit the land of Canaan and to give birth to the promised Messiah, going all the way to uh, Stephen speaking to the Jews in the book of Acts, where he calls them the children, the sons of the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12. Uh, and so it, it, it is an earthly covenant, but it promises an earthly descendant who will bring about, who will make available a heavenly covenant. So they're saved People could be saved under the Abrahamic covenant, but not by the Abrahamic covenant. Absolutely. absolutely. And Abraham himself, of course. I mean, he's the paradigmatic believer, the, the man of faith. Mm. So the Old Testament circumcised, unbelieving Israelite is in the Abrahamic covenant, but he is not in the new covenant. Necessarily. Is that correct? Correct, because the criteria are, are distinct. Who, who are circumcised? The, the offspring of Abraham and the, all those who are brought into his household through even conquest and purchase. Uh, those, those are circumcised, whereas who are baptized? Well, disciples is what we see the pattern and the command. First the command and then the pattern in the New Testament. But would you would you also say that the Old Testament circumcised believing Israelite is both in the Abrahamic covenant and in the covenant of grace? Yes, absolutely. I'm sorry, I mis- misunderstood your question no, the first no, time I asked, around. Yeah, yes, I, I would agree with that. Question formally, I did I, before. I was asking: Is the unbelieving Israelite in the Abrahamic covenant and not in the covenant of grace? And you would say yes. And I agree, but the believing Israelite is in both the Abrahamic and the covenant of grace, right? Yeah, and, and Paul talks about those persons. He said that uh, that there are those who are uh, the offspring of Abraham, and then there are also those who 
are the offspring of Abraham because they believe as he did. They're, they're Jews not only outwardly, but also inwardly, Paul says. So he, Paul identifies that category of child of Abraham born from his body, but also following his belief. And I would argue, as you, as you said, that they are in the Abrahamic covenant and they are in the covenant of grace or the new covenant. Would you agree that the covenant of grace is operative in the Old Testament, um, but not yet inaugurated or not yet formalized? Do you use that language? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the promise of Christ and salvation in him is made known from Genesis 3.15 onward. And so, therefore, that there will be salvation and that it will be effected by God is promised from the very beginning and therefore can be believed and received and enjoyed, and it was, yeah. uh, by all believers in all ages and in all places. And yet, on what basis would that salvation come? Well, the, the crushing of the head of the serpent that has not that had not yet happened. It was a promise of what would be accomplished, uh, and so therefore, you know, as that re- revelation progresses, it's a promise of one not just who crushes the head of the serpent, but also the one who blesses the nations, also the one who is a prophet like Moses, also the one who is the faithful son of David, and it goes on and on and on. And yet, those things have not yet come to pass until Christ is born and Christ dies and Christ rises and ascends and sits down. And so, yes, there is an, um, an activity uh, of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, a reaching of its benefits to all people in all ages, even though its legal establishment, as Hebrews says, did not happen until Christ died and shed his blood. Now, this is really good, Sam. We appreciate uh, your efforts in writing this book and uh, giving us the opportunity to publish it and to make it available. We certainly appreciate you being with us today. Uh, we want to commend this book to everyone. In fact, we've got it on a, a deep discounted sale for the month of September. So encourage you to order copies and tell other folks about them. And Sam, if folks wanted to learn more about you or get in touch with you or maybe sermons that you've preached, lectures that you've given, how could they do that? Our church has a sermon audio page, so if you search my name or if you search Trinity Reformed Baptist Church on sermon audio, that would be uh, probably the, one of the best ways, or you can search my name on Amazon and find other books that I've authored if you're interested in such things. Uh, or you can follow me on Twitter, uh, Petty, Petty France. Petty <laughs> France. All right, tell us about Petty France. <laughs> Do you really want to know? Petty France was uh, <laughs> pretty pants. That's what you thought it pretty was. Pretty pants. <laughs> wow. You're fired. <laughs> Petty France, it was a, a neighborhood in London where there was a, a particular Baptist church that is dear to my heart, and I've been researching and plan to be publishing about uh, where Nehemiah Cox and William Collins were pastors, and it was very much involved in the publication of the confession we hold today, the 1689 confession. And so Petty France, is, it's a church. It's a particular Baptist church from the 17th century that I've been working on. Very good. Well, Dr. Renahan, thank you for your time. Uh, we look forward to having you back on this program sometime in the future. And appreciate, again, all the hard work that's gone into this book. We do need to remind folks we've got a conference coming up in December. It's that's December right. the 5th through the 7th right here in Cape Coral. That's right. Southeast Regional Founders Conference on the law and the gospel. Issues very closely related to the one that we've been talking about today with 
Dr. Sam Renahan. So check out founders.org, register for that. Don't forget to go to the store as well and pick up this book, The Mystery of Christ, $12 for the month of September. It's a great deal. Uh, thanks again for listening today. Sam, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. It was a pleasure.